And I want to just say thank you to all, all of the moms here uh, on behalf of, of this church. So many of you uh, act as spiritual mothers and spiritual mentors, and this is, this is a very important type of mothering that goes on in the church, uh, in the ministry of the church, and we're so thankful for you as you pour into the lives of other people. And uh, I'm, I'm thankful for all of the moms who have been faithful in giving the gospel and raising up people in the image of Jesus. Uh, thankful for you this morning. And we have a, a, a text this morning that I think, I, I didn't plan this, right? We go through uh, chapter by chapter or passage by chap, uh, passage. We're not planning this. But what a passage today for encouragement to mothers in faithfulness. That's what we have today in Acts chapter 18, a case study in faithfulness. What does faithful ministry look like? Paul is in the city of Corinth. Corinth is the last stop, the last major stop on his second missionary journey. He's going to stop very briefly, very, very short amount of time in Ephesus on his way back to Syria and the church in Antioch. And so Corinth marks the last phase of his second missionary journey. And we're going to look at his ministry here in Corinth today. So if you would join me in standing. Join me in standing. If you're, if you're able, physically able, join me in standing for honoring God's word. We want to honor God's word as we read it. So Acts chapter 18, we're going to read from verse 1 all the way down through verse 22. Acts chapter 18, verse 1 through 22. Follow along as I read. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles." He left there, went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. 
And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul made, stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. As in Crea, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, the church at Jerusalem, and then went down to Antioch. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I was listening recently to a podcast about a famous uh, person in history, Abraham Lincoln. And they were, this is two podcasts I've listened to in the last three weeks, actually, that were trying to decide whether or not Abraham Lincoln was a believer in Jesus Christ. Maybe you have an opinion about that. But in, in the podcast, they were making the case that he was not, in fact, a believer. And many times historians will, will try to prove their point by taking and, and picking and choosing what references throughout history they want to use and things like that. But it was made, the point was made, and I thought it was a good point, that exceptional people, exceptional people are formed by exceptional times. Exceptional people are formed by exceptional times. Often we'll talk about great people in history or exceptional people in history, but we we will not understand that they are great or exceptional because they lived at a particular time, in a particular moment. It was in fact the moment that they lived in which produced them. Abraham Lincoln's considered a great president, but he's considered great because he lived and was president in the greatest crisis of our country. George Washington's considered a great president because he lived and was a president at the birth of our country. Great people or exceptional people are formed by their times. Throughout scripture, you will hardly find one more exceptional than the Apostle Paul. You'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who would be as great and have such an impact as the Apostle Paul. He is, in fact, largely responsible for writing our New Testament, the New Testament that shapes and forms us. Paul was one of the primary authors of the New Testament. But Paul was just a man. I think that's what we miss often. That these great men or great people throughout history, they, they are merely people. People born at a particular time and by providence put into a place where God wants them to be, to have an impact that God has designed for them. See, often in talking about great people or great men or exceptional people throughout history, our focus, wrongly so, becomes a a fascination with the person themselves. Who would a person be if God had not providentially placed them? The Apostle Paul is the same. 
The, the Apostle Paul has a wonderful ministry. And Corinth, Corinth is, I think, as much as any other passage, Corinth is a, is a true glimpse into who Paul is. And what faithfulness in his ministry looked like. We're going to see today what faithfulness in Paul's ministry looks like. But here's the thing. You and I are not called to Paul's ministry. You are not the Apostle Paul. I am not the Apostle Paul, although I'm confused for him often. I'm going to start going by my middle name or something. I'm not the Apostle Paul. Neither are you. Paul was providentially called and placed for his ministry. The ministry God had for him. You and I are also providentially placed. We are called and placed in a particular moment. And, and here's, I want you to hear this because just in case you're, you're wondering. History will not remember you. And history will not remember me. You will never reach the status that the Apostle Paul reached. That's not your calling. You, you won't be remembered. You won't be recognized. More, more than likely, a hundred years from now, people will not be studying your life. But you have been providentially placed in a particular time for the exact ministry that God has designed for you. And the measuring sticks of God are not the measuring sticks of men. You and I would say, well, Paul was great. I'm nothing. No, that's not the way, that's not the way God's measuring sticks work. What God will be measuring, first of all, he has measured Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has, we've talked about this before and often, Jesus Christ has been the perfect son. He has, he has obtained God's perfect favor. And you and I have been joined. If we are in Christ, we have been joined to Christ and his favor is ours. His life is ours. His work is ours. We have pleased God and been accepted by God in Christ. So we don't work so that God will be happy with us. No, we have been made one with Christ and God could not be more pleased with us. No, but in, in our ministries, the measuring sticks are not men's measuring sticks. We will be measured by our faithfulness. Our faithfulness to where God has placed you. That's what you will be measured by. And today, we look in Corinth to see a case study in faithfulness. We will see four marks. Four marks of faithfulness. Now, these are not the exhaustive list of what it means to be faithful. But they are uh, a good start at what it means to be faithful. And I would encourage you to take some self-examination today, even of the ministry God's given you, where you're at. Are you faithful in that ministry that he has given you? Paul leaves Athens. Remember, Athens was where we were last week. And Paul was preaching to the intellectuals in the Areopagus. 
the intellectuals of Athens. Athens was the intellectual, academic, cultural center of the ancient world. It is where you went if you wanted to be somebody and learn something. Athens was where the elite rubbed shoulders. Paul stays in Athens a very short time. And he leaves and finds himself in a city called Corinth. Corinth. These are the people that he will later write 1st and 2nd Corinthians to. Corinth. Well, if Athens is the intellectual and cultural center of the ancient world, Corinth is the Las Vegas. That's what Corinth is. It's a city positioned strategically for merchants and for trade, but because of its busyness, it also has an industry and entertainment and immorality. Uh, you, you could say like you would a Vegas. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. This is where businessmen would come through and merchants would come through and every opportunity for vice and immorality was available to them. Corinth was a dirty city. You'll see that when Paul writes First and Second Corinthians. You'll see that that culture, that culture that that church is planted in, that culture is seeping or, or affecting the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth struggles mightily with immorality and sin, which is often the tr- truth. The culture around us can affect us and impact the church. And Paul writes to them later on to tell them to distance themselves from that culture. Don't let it seep in. Corinth was the sin city. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, I think, brings out an interesting contrast. Whenever he says, not many wise, not, not many wise were chosen. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And I think it's a direct contrast with, with, with Athens. He's in Athens for a couple of weeks. He's in Athens talking to the intellectuals and the, the uh, elites. But now he's in Corinth, the sin city. These are the, these are the low lowlifes of the ancient world. And it's here, not Athens. It's here that he will stay for a year and a half. This is where the church is going to be started. This is where God is going to work. Corinth was a cesspool of vice and immorality. But I, as I was working the yard again this past week, I thought, you know, where does the grass grow best? Where does the grass grow in your yard the best? Over the septic tank. That's where it grows. And as is often the case, the gospel soil is very hard in the intellectual world. People that think they are something. And think they have arrived in knowledge. But where does the gospel often flourish? You know where the gospel flourishes? On the other side of the tracks. That's where the gospel flourishes. In the places where people know they're sinners. In the places where people know their lives are dirty. That's why we sing, he cleansed me, he cleansed me, right? He forgave all my sin. In order for you to be able to rejoice in that, you've got to know you're a sinner. In, in order to be able to rejoice in the cleansing act of God and be actually thankful, rejoicing that, you've got to be well aware of your sin. Are you aware of your sinfulness today? 
This is where the gospel flourishes. I've got to be honest with you. When I walk through Spokane Valley, it's not the prettiest of places. When I walk into stores in the Spokane Valley, I'm burdened by the condition of people's lives. Have you ever been burdened by the condition of people's lives? When you walk through Walmart, oh my goodness. Walk through Winco. Walk through Costco. Look around you. Are you burdened by the lives that people are living as you drive up and down Sprague? How many times have you heard somebody knock on Sprague? Man, Sprague's a dirty place, isn't it? When I see that, I think to myself, what an opportunity for the gospel. The gospel's not meant for the the gospel's not meant for those who think they've arrived. The gospel's meant for sinners. And this is where he finds himself, Corinth. And the gospel the gospel is about to act here in the midst of these sinners and blossom and flower. But we see Paul's ministry here marked by faithfulness. And I have, again, four marks of faithfulness. Number one, I want you to see that Paul's faithfulness is aided by fellow workers. Paul's faithfulness is aided by fellow workers. Look at it there. Verse 2, when he gets to the city, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Uh, This is a historical event, historical verifiable event. Claudius, the emperor of Rome, had, had ordered all the Jewish people to leave. And if you look at historians, they actually accredit or credit this uh, need for the Jews to leave Rome to great agitation among the Jewish people. Great agitation spawned by a Crestus, somebody named Crestus, uh, caused great agitation in the Jewish communities. Most scholars think this is actually a reference to Christ. That Christ and the message of Christ there in Rome had created such a tumult, such a turmoil, that the, the, the governing officials were tired of dealing with it. And they said, okay, get out. It's time to leave. It's time to go. I think you see that later in this passage. We're not going to spend much time with uh, when he's in front of the proconsul, Galileo. But Galileo, he's done with it. He says, this is your own matter. This is a Jewish issue. I don't want to deal with it. I'm not going to judge between you. Deal with it yourselves. The uh, Roman government was beginning to get impatient with this quote-unquote Jewish problem. And we've seen that, haven't we? Where Paul goes into the synagogue, he preaches the message of Jesus, and, and the Jews just happily receive it, right? No. When he goes in and he preaches in the synagogue, it creates turmoil. And there's great fighting and a mob and all of these things. And I think that's what's happening all across the ancient world where the Jewish people are found that message is going the message of the gospel and is creating chaos so claudius had kicked all the jews out of rome aquila and priscilla they travel to corinth and there they meet up with paul paul has the same trade as aquila and priscilla he's a tent maker uh, literally a, a leather worker he's he works with leather 
which would be involved in making tents as well as other things. He's a leather worker who finds Aquila and Priscilla and joins up with them. And Aquila and Priscilla become extremely important to Paul's ministry. I want you to, and I'm, I'm going to have you turn just a couple other places today. I want you to turn over, keep your place in Acts uh, 18, but I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 16. He mentions Aquila and Priscilla in a couple places, but I want you to note specifically Romans 16, verse 3. Paul is writing Romans from Corinth later on in his ministry. He's writing the Romans, the church in Rome. Verse number three, he says, Greet Prissa, or Priscilla, and Aquila. Look at how he describes them. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. To whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. What does he say about Aquila and Priscilla? He said, they risked their necks, necks for my life. And I am thankful for them, and not only I, but all of the churches are thankful for their ministry as well. And greet the church that's in their house. You know, when we're measuring greatness, we think, Apostle Paul, right? Well, he says, Aquila and Priscilla, they risked their necks for my life. They supported me. And all the churches owe a debt of gratitude to them. You see, your ministry, my ministry, our ministry, cannot be accomplished alone. There is no faithfulness without fellow workers. There's, there's no solo ministry. I, I, I get a little bit tired of people mentioning people like John Piper and John MacArthur and you know all these guys that they love, all the, all the people that you've listened to and read, and we're thankful for their ministry, but where would they be without all the countless numbers of people around them? Where would they be? You, you know what Winston Churchill's great weakness is? Is he wanted all the glory all the time. But he had countless of people supporting him. He never gave them any credit. He always wanted credit for himself. Where would John Piper be? You, 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 have you been blessed by Desiring God Ministries? Maybe you don't know that many, but Desiring God, it's a, it's a website you can go and get good articles and good sermons. Have you appreciated that? Do you think John Piper's setting up that website himself? Do you? Do you think he's doing that himself? You think John MacArthur wrote his study Bible? The answer is no, he didn't. He's surrounded by professors and scholars who have actually written that for him and then put his name on it. I, I don't mean to I don't mean to burst your bubble, but that's the way it works. It's okay to be thankful for men who have impacted your life. But understand that faithfulness can only happen with the aid of fellow workers. And that's the case of this church as well. 
Our ministry can't be accomplished alone. You, you don't come here to hear Paul, not the apostle, just the pastor in Spokane Valley. You don't come here to hear Paul or go to some other church to hear that guy or this guy. That's the wrong understanding of ministry. Some people think that the ministry happens up here for like an hour on Sunday morning when I, when I speak. Somebody, somebody people, or an hour and five minutes. Some, some people think, some people think that the, some people think that the ministry happens here. This is not where the ministry happens. This is a part of the ministry, but the ministry is happening all the time, all around us. And you're part of it. I love Brandon Wong. Every week, Brandon Wong says, hey, thanks for preaching. I said, man, thanks for listening. Because if you weren't listening, I, my preaching would be pretty silly. Standing up here by myself. But every one of you, those who are here early in the morning, where would we be without the sound and tech? Where would we be without the nursery workers? Where would we be without the people that are actually organized and arranged for us to have this meeting place? Where would we be without those that lead us in singing? Where would we be without people behind the scenes organizing? I mean, I told my guys that this week. We would not exist except for the administrative team. The administrative team has done all this work. But when people talk about Trinity, what do they say? Oh yeah, Paul Funches went and started a church out in the valley. And I hate that. Paul Funches didn't do anything. I'm pretty inept when it comes to 98% of life. Right? We're in this together. This is not one man's thing. And it wasn't with Paul either. His faithfulness was aided by fellow workers... Do you see your ministry as being essential to the work of the ministry? I think we need to redefine ministry. Ministry is not just in a formal sense or in a recognized sense. No, ministry happens all the time in all of life. All of life is ministry for us as followers of Jesus Christ. Do you see yourself as essential to the contribution of this ministry and the work of this ministry. I think, and, I, and I'm not picking here, but I, I want you to understand the importance of presence and attendance. I, I'm speaking, I'm preaching to the choir, as it were, on this, because you, you are so faithful. But do you realize how important it is for you just to be here and be present, to be encouraging to one another, encouraging one another in the word on a weekly basis. And when you're not here, that has greatly hampered the ministry of the word. Paul's faithfulness is aided by fellow workers. In heaven, Paul is going to Paul is going to be recognized, right? But it's all those around him that will share in that ministry recognition together and ultimately who are we going to be pointing to we're not going to be pointing to paul or any of the others right we're going to be pointing to jesus he who is faithful above all else he gets the credit he gets the glory and that leads to the second point paul's faithfulness is aided by fellow workers and his faithfulness is proven by his genuineness His faithfulness is proven 
by his genuineness. So where do you get that from? Well, it, it happens right there in that same section. Paul goes and meets Aquila and Priscilla, and he goes and, and begins to occupy himself in work. He works with his hands. And on Sabbath, he goes and reasons in the synagogues every Sabbath and tries to persuade Jews and Greeks. First, look at verse 5. When, Paul, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul then was occupied with the word. You didn't get the then there in your English translation, but that's the idea. Up until Timothy and Silas show up, Paul's got to support himself. And he supports himself by tent making. But when Silas and Timothy show up, they bring with them some money. Some money from Macedonia. You actually find this in 2 Corinthians 11, and it's referenced in 1 Corinthians 9 as well. So, so here's how it played out, okay? Paul was in Athens. Remember, Paul was in Athens. And he sends word back to Timothy and Silas. They say, tell them to come and join me as soon as they possibly can. Well, they do. You don't see it in the Bible because it doesn't note it. But they actually come and, and meet him in Athens. And then he turns around and sends them right back out from Athens to go and check on the, the churches up in Macedonia, up in Thessalonica, and Philippi. That's what they'd go and do. So, so Timothy and Silas actually leave Paul in Athens again, and they go up to Thessalonica and Philippi. Then Paul travels down to Corinth. While they're traveling up to Thessalonica and Philippi, he travels down to Corinth, and there he is. Until they get there, he's got to work with his hands to support himself. And then when Silas and Timothy show up, this is what it says in 2 Corinthians 11, they bring with them monetary support from Philippi. This is the book of Philippians. Philippians talks about that monetary support that the Philippian church gave him. And they are bringing this money so that Paul can then occupy himself with the word. He doesn't have to work anymore. He can actually just focus completely on the preaching of the word. Sometimes people will take this text to see, see, proof text, real, real pastors need to work for a living. Real pastors, I, I get that question sometimes. Do you only work on Sundays? You're a pastor, you only work on Sundays, not like the rest of us. No, I, I work every day of the week. But this is, this, is the, this is the idea, isn't it? People think, well, a real pastor, a real preacher needs to work like everybody else. Well, Paul actually says in the very same passage, 1 Corinthians 9 and... 1 Timothy 5, 17, he actually says that those who are occupied with the word, those who live by the gospel, that is, those who live by in doing the preaching of the word, they should be supported by God's people. But here you have Paul in Corinth. He's preaching the word, but he needs to support himself. Why doesn't he just ask the Corinthians for money? This is important. Paul doesn't ask Corinth for money. Why? Because he's doing gospel work. He's doing evangelism. He doesn't want anything to stand in the way of his ministry to them. He doesn't want anything to stand in the way of his ministry to them and their ability to hear the gospel. We see this detailed again in 2 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 9. 
Paul wants no obstacles in his ministry to these Corinthians. He doesn't, he doesn't want them to owe him anything. He isn't trying to get anything from them. This is what the, the traveling preachers would do. And this is one of, the, one of the reasons Paul doesn't want this, because he doesn't want to be seen as one of the traveling preachers, one of the charlatans traveling and trying to enrich themselves off the back of unsuspecting, unsuspecting people. So he goes into Corinth, the, the, the other traveling preachers would go in and they would charge money and give people messages and give people false hope, right? And they'd get paid money for that. Same in the Old Testament, a false prophet, a false prophet is on the payroll. And Paul says, no, I'm not going to be bound by any. I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm not on anybody's payroll. And so he works with his hands. Think about that. He works with his hands. He sacrifices. He works hard. He isn't using his ministry for his own gain. I'm afraid that so many times in our day and age, those who minister are really seeking to gain by the ministry of the gospel. H.B. Charles says this about preachers. H.B. Charles, who is a contemporary preacher, pastor, H.B. Charles says, the pastor who wants to preach but doesn't want to prepare is merely interested in performance. And I think that's true of all of us. In our ministries or in our lives, we want something. We want the acclaim that comes. We want the reputation that comes. We want the gratitude that should come. We want to be noticed. We want to be recognized. And, and this tells us that our ministry is not genuine. See, faithfulness is about being purely motivated. Faithfulness, in turn, will require hard work and sacrifice most of the time without any credit and without anyone noticing. Death to self. Faithfulness requires death to self and self-gain. Let me ask you just a couple of questions on this. Do you, do you feel slighted? In your life and ministry, do you feel as if you are owed something? Do you feel entitled? You'll hear this in parenting a lot of times, right? After all I've done for you, that's the thanks I get, right? Don't you know all I've sacrificed? Don't you know all I've done? This shows that we're not genuinely motivated, but rather interested in what our children will give to us. Did you know you can parent that way? You're actually parenting for what your kids can give you? Did you know your, your, kids, your kids aren't for you? They're, they don't exist to give you something. 
That's, that's why parenting is so hard and so much work. Because your kids aren't actually there to give you what you're looking for often. Not identity. Your kids aren't there to give you identity. Your kids aren't there to give you purpose. Your kids aren't there to give you meaning. Your kids aren't there to give you gratitude and security. And No, no your kids are, they are gifts from God to you. And you are a steward of what belongs rightfully to God. And your job is not to produce a particular result. Your job is to be faithful with what God has entrusted to you. Are there obstacles? The second question along with this point. Are there obstacles that hurt your testimony with others? Paul wanted no obstacles. This is where he says, I become all thing to all men so that I might save some. I become a servant of all that I might save some. This is also 1 Corinthians 9. Paul's genuineness is proven by his desire or his, uh, uh, his hard work and sacrifice. That's what proves his faithfulness. His genuine care and willingness to sacrifice. So Paul's faithfulness is aided by fellow workers. Paul's faithfulness is proven by his genuineness. And Paul's faithfulness is measured by fidelity to the gospel. After Silas and Timothy arrive with a gift from Philippi, from Macedonia, Paul occupies himself with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And what does he get for that? What does he get for that? Well, look at it there in verse number 6. And when they opposed and reviled him. When they opposed and reviled him. That's what he gets for it. His hard work and faithfulness get him reviling and resistance. Matthew 5 tells us that's what we should expect. When men revile you and say all manner of evil against you for my sake, you're blessed. You're blessed, Jesus says in Matthew 5. This is what faithful proclamation of the gospel will actually get us. They oppose him, they revile him, they resist him. And look at what he does as a result of their opposition. Verse 6. So he shakes out his garments and says to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. So this is a Jewish thing to do. He shakes out his garments. This is what you would do when you were leaving Gentile territory, right? You'd kick off your shoes. You don't want to carry any dust or dirt from those dirty places into the pure promised land, right? Into the Jewish territory. And this is what he does. He kind of turns it on them. He says, I'm going to shake out my garment. I don't want any of your dust coming with me as I leave and go to the Gentiles. You're unworthy of the gospel. He shakes out his garments and he says, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. This is referenced often throughout scripture, this phrase, your blood be on your own heads. Ezekiel 33 talks about the watchman that stands on the wall. Remember, 
In Ezekiel 33, there's a watchman that stands on the wall, and his job is to see when danger is coming, when the judgment's approaching, and he's to blow the trumpet and warn everybody that it's coming. And if they don't listen, if they don't heed the blowing of the trumpet, then their blood be on their own heads. But if the watchman is lazy, if the watchman doesn't blow the trumpet, if the watchman doesn't alarm and alert the people, then their blood is on his head. And Paul says, your blood is on your own heads. I've done everything I can. I've warned you. I've proclaimed the gospel to you. I've been faithful in it. Your guilt is on you. I am innocent. He had declared the message of Jesus faithfully. His conscience was clear. Can I ask you just that that question? (laughs) Are you innocent of the blood of the people in your life? Are you innocent of the blood of the people in your life that you're surrounded by often? Are you innocent of their blood? Have you done all that you can do within your power to proclaim the gospel clearly to them? I want you to see he proclaimed the message in its entirety. And the results of his work, the results of his faithful ministry were not the measuring stick. The results of gospel proclamation are not the measuring stick of faithfulness. In fact, the gospel will always have mixed results. If you, if you think you're only a faithful evangelist, if people receive the gospel, then you misunderstand. The results are not yours. The results are up to God. Our job is to be faithful. And to be faithful to the gospel message in its entirety, in its fullness. This is why we have equipping hour. Not today. We don't have equipping hour today because you're going to go out with your loved ones and celebrate Mother's Day. But this is why we're doing our equipping hour on the gospel. Somebody says, well, the gospel. Everybody knows the gospel. I'm afraid. I'm afraid people don't don't know the gospel. They do not know the gospel. Even people that are professing Christians, they're pretty shaky on the details of the gospel, which is alarming. If we're going to be faithful proclaimers of the gospel, we want to make sure that the gospel we proclaim is correct. It's right. We need to rehearse the gospel, learn the gospel, rejoice in the gospel. And you see that there were some that received it. I think this is hilarious. He shakes off his garments. Do you see it there? He shakes off his garments and he says, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. I'm going to the Gentiles. And he's like, I imagine him like going out and slamming the door and walking right next door. He goes right next door. He goes right next door to the synagogue where there's a Greek man, Titius Justice, and he sets up shop right next door to the synagogue. That's where the church begins. And here's, here's even more astounding thing. The synagogue ruler, so the guy who's like the, the service coordinator for the synagogue, he leaves with Paul. 
Paul leaves. Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. He says, I'm with you, man. He leaves. He goes right next door. And they set up shop. They start a church right next door to the synagogue. As a perpetual, constant witness to those Jews that come every Sabbath. Here's where the church meets. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. Look at what it says in verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul. Remember this cesspool, the sin city? Many of them, many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. That's the pattern of conversion. That's what conversion looks like. They hear the message They believe the message and they are baptized in public recognition and public profession of their repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the pattern of conversion. How often we cut corners with the gospel in order to get results. How often we cut corners with the gospel in order to get people to receive whatever message it is that we're giving them. Listen, if the message of the gospel for you is Jesus has come so that you can have a better life. How many people will receive that? Oh, a bunch of people. Because I want a better life. Don't you want a better life? Don't you want a better marriage? Don't you want better uh, parenting? Don't you want prosperity and business and success? See, that's not the gospel. Jesus didn't come so that you could have a better life. In fact, following Jesus is going to get rocks thrown at your head. That's what Paul has shown us. No, the gospel is this. God is the creator of all. We saw that last week. God, there is a God who has created all, and he is the supreme God. He is the only God. And he has created you and me for himself. You and I exist for him, not the other way around. God is not here for you. We are here for God and created by God. We are his creation. And we owe him, listen, we owe him all praise and all glory. That's why we start out every Sunday with a call to worship. And we start out with Psalm 150 today, right? Praise him, praise him, praise him. That's because he is due all praise and all glory and all honor. He has all authority. He is God and he's to be worshipped as God by you and me. That's what we owe him. That's what our lives are supposed to be about. But they're not. No, no, they're not. From the moment we enter this world, we live for ourselves We live for our own glory and for our own praise and for our own accomplishments and we seek to bring others to this purpose of giving us glory and credit and honor. It's all about us. We rob God of his glory. We take it for ourselves and we think that it's our life. We live the way I want. No, that's sin. That's actually the definition of sin. Sin is the rejection of God as God and the exaltation of self into that place. And that's what we all do. Because of that, what should God do to those who have rejected him as God? What should God do? What would a king do? A king of a sovereign nation. A king who has people in his kingdom who are treasonous and seek to overthrow him. What should a king do? Kids, what should a king do if if he's a sovereign over a nation and there's a bunch of people that try to overthrow him? What should he do? 
Give him a little slap on the wrist. Give him a little spank. No. No, what should he do? They should die. And all of us would stand back and say, that's right. That's just. That, what, what kind of ruler would he be if he let people just kind of try to overthrow him all the time and didn't do anything about it? No, God should judge man. And mankind is under the judgment of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and righteousness of man, Romans 1. We deserve wrath. We deserve justice. And justice is coming. Judgment is coming. And yet, that same God provided, he put forth his son to be a propitiation for our sin. Propitiation is a fancy term that just means to absorb the wrath, to satisfy the wrath. The wrath that God has for sinful man, Jesus has absorbed, Jesus has satisfied that wrath. And now he offers salvation to anyone who would turn from their treasonous sin and place their faith and hope for salvation in Jesus, in his work, his death, and his resurrection to give victory over sin and death. This is the gospel. It includes sin. It includes a definition of God. It includes a definition of sin. It includes a definition of judgment. It includes a definition of Christ and what Christ has done. And it includes a call to repentance and faith. That's the gospel. And that's what we're required and asked and obligated to proclaim to the lost nations. That's what Paul proclaims. We, we aren't just to settle for results. We can get, we get people to receive, quote-unquote, Jesus. That's not what we're here to do, but proclaim the gospel. Are you innocent of the blood of those around you? And do you know the message in its truthfulness, in its entirety? Are you faithful in proclaiming that message? You say, where am I, I going to proclaim that message? How about starting with your home? How about starting with your children? How about starting with the people right in your immediate context? Do your kids know the gospel? Or do you think they're just going to raise up in the church and kind of just get it by, you know, rubbing up shoulders with people? Osmosis is the fancy word, I think, for that. No, that's not the way the gospel works. They need to hear the message. And Paul's faithfulness is measured by his fidelity to the gospel. Have you been faithful? Last point. Last point. I'll be done. Paul's faithfulness is aided by fellow workers. Paul's faithfulness is proven by his genuineness. Paul's faithfulness is measured by fidelity to the gospel. Again, if you've been faithful to the gospel... You're innocent of the matter, right? Conscience can be clear. Paul's faithfulness, lastly, is resting in God's sovereignty. Most blessed text here. We see in verse number 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, 
For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months. Eighteen months. A year and a half he stayed teaching the word of God among them. What gave longevity to Paul's ministry here? If you're not paying attention, you'll miss it. God actually meets with him in a vision and says to him, don't be afraid, but go on speaking and don't be silent. You know what that implies? You know what that implies? Paul was afraid. Paul was afraid. See, sometimes we think, no, not the apostle Paul. This guy's just charging around, going to synagogue after synagogue, getting rocks thrown at him. Getting drug out and and tried before men. Paul's bold. Well, Paul may be bold, but he's also just a man. And he's afraid. You want to see me prove this? Explicitly. Look at 1 Corinthians. Can you turn over there to 1 Corinthians? I told you I'd have you turn to a couple places. But this is the the last one. 1 Corinthians 2. Look at this. He's writing to the Corinthians. He's writing to the Corinthians here. These are the people that he's with. Later on, he writes to them. Look at what he says. I'll start in verse 1. He says, And and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I, I, I wasn't very impressive. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Again, he was true to the gospel. And I was, verse 3 is the point, look at it, verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul says, I came to you and I was afraid. I was with you in much trembling. Why? Why, Paul? Well, do you remember what's, what's happened to him? He went to Philippi and he was arrested. Remember? He was, he was beaten and arrested. And then he goes to Thessalonica and a mob is raised up and chases him out. And he goes down to Berea and that same mob comes to get him there. Then he goes to Athens and he's put on trial there on top of the Areopagus by learned men who mock him and scoff at him. Every place he goes, it is, it is so difficult. Do you think he gets tired? See, sometimes we don't, we don't see that. We don't see how tired he is. We don't see how afraid he is. We don't see how weak he is. He's just a guy who's been converted. And he comes to Corinth and he's there in fear and weakness and much trembling. And it's there in that fear and in that weakness and in much trembling. That is where God meets him. And look again at what God tells him. Don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. For I'm with you. And no one will attack you or harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. God actually gives him a specific promise for him in that moment. He says, I have work to do here and no one's going to touch you until my work is done here. Now you and I don't have that specific promise. We're not the Apostle Paul, remember? Unless God has shown up in a vision for you and told you, hey, no one's going to hurt you or harm you until this work is done. No, we don't have that same promise, do we? But in principle, we have this same promise. 
Nothing can happen to us unless it is ordained by God. And you see this wonderful, blessed truth. He says, I have many in this city who are my people. In other words, Paul, I'm calling and drawing many here in Corinth. I'm drawing them to myself. And I'm going to accomplish that work. And we believe the same here where we live. Are, are, are people going to, by and large, receive the gospel? No. In fact, when you proclaim the gospel, people are going to oppose you. That's to be expected. But in every place, I believe God is drawing men and women and children to himself. These are his people. And he's accomplishing that ministry through us, through this church and other churches that are faithful to the gospel. Paul was afraid and weak, but get this, Paul also had a big God theology. Do you have a big God theology? Or do you have a big man theology? This is, this is the hang-up for people. They think much more of man than they do of God. This is what springs forth many questions about sovereignty and God's purpose and election. When man is big in our minds, we will always struggle with God and his claims as God. But when we see God in his truthfulness and have a big God theology, we can understand what he's doing with and for mankind. Do you have a big God theology or a big man theology? The bedrock of our faithfulness must be planted on a theology that makes much of God and sees man in their rightful place. I think of Adoniram Judson. Do you know the story of Adoniram Judson? You probably do. I would commend to you the life and ministry of Adoniram Judson. Fascinating and convicting, saddening, but also encouraging. Adoniram Judson left his home in the United States with his wife, Anne, and they traveled to Burma. I believe it was 1813 when they arrived in Burma. He became a Baptist, I think. He became, became a Baptist on the way over. That's another story. Adoniram Judson landed in Burma in 1813, and he and his wife Anne worked hard, sacrificed, much like we saw the Apostle Paul. They worked tirelessly to get the gospel to the Burmese people. Six years in to their ministry, they had no converts, none, zero, zip, nada, nothing. All the work, all the sacrifice, all, all the disease and pain and suffering, nothing to show for it. And then six years in, one convert. One convert. In 1831, Adoniram would write a letter, 1831, talking about how God had seemed to bring a desire, an overwhelming desire with the peoples for the gospel. 1831, he writes of the reception, the widespread reception they were beginning to experience of the gospel 
with the gospel, with the Burmese people. 1813 to 1831, in all that time, just a couple of converts, 19 years almost, nothing. And not only that, great suffering and disease, great suffering in family life. He lost his wife, Anne. Anne died horrifically of disease, trying to take care of him while he was in prison. Actually, she was so beaten and so worn down from trying to take care of him while he was in prison that she died shortly after, and their newborn daughter died. In fact, in 19 years, his wife died, and I believe two children died in those 19 years. Great suffering Adoniram experienced. Why did he stay? He tells in another letter that people that go to Burma... They either die or leave within five years. Why did he stay? You know why Adonaim Judson stayed? Because he believed this very truth in Acts 18. He believed that God had many people from Burma that he was saving. And that belief in the sovereignty of God, he had a robust big God theology, a robust belief in the sovereignty and the sovereign purpose of God and salvation. That is the only thing that kept him there. And it is the only thing that will keep you. Paul's faithfulness is aided by his fellow workers. It's proven by his genuineness. Is measured not by results, but by fidelity to the gospel. And rests, his faithfulness rests in the sovereignty of God as it should for us. Paul is able to minister in the way he does because he looks to Jesus. Jesus, who is the model of selflessness, genuine love, and sacrifice. Jesus, who is the model of innocence, and doing everything that can be done for the sake of lost sinners. Jesus, who himself entrusts himself to God the Father in all that he does. Paul is looking to Jesus. We look to Paul as an example, but you know what? Paul's looking at Jesus, and that's who we ultimately look to as well. Jesus who has run the race before us and calls us to run that same race of faithfulness. Have you been faithful? Have you been faithful with the ministry God's given you where you're at? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the example that we are given in your word of people who have sacrificed much, who have given much, For the sake of the name of Jesus, you have called us to the same ministry. Looks different, different circumstances. The same word, the same gospel, and the same call to faithfulness. I pray that you would make us a faithful people. For your glory and your name we pray. Amen.